This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Women in Medicine. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Women have long been the traditional caregivers in our society while simultaneously being prohibited from obtaining official titles or positions as medical professionals, such as physicians. It wasn't until 1849 that the first woman graduated from an American medical school. Elizabeth Blackwell graduated from Geneva Medical College after numerous medical schools rejected her purely on the basis of being a woman. She used her skill and degree to open the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children in 1857 alongside her sister, Dr. Emily Blackwell, and protege, Dr. Marie Zakruska. The facility not only cared for patients, but also provided a training ground for other women interested in medicine. In fact, one such student was Dr. Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who later went on to become the first female doctor in England. Despite admitting a few women here and there, most medical schools continued to bar women from entrance for many years. The American Medical Association even recommended against co-education in 1857 report. For example, Harvard, is one of the last medical schools to admit women, which it did not allow until 1945, almost in an entire century after Elizabeth Blackwell's graduation. Now, over a third of practicing physicians in the United States are women. Just a few years ago, in 2019, women surpassed men in U.S. medical school enrollment for the very first time. In the latest 2021 to 2022 application cycle, 55% of U.S. medical schools and 55.5% of matriculants were women. Today, I have invited two of Ohio State University's women in medicine and science leaders, 
Dr. Arwa Shana'a is an associate professor, professor of pathology at the Wexner Medical Center and was one of the founding members of Women in Medicine and Science Group. I have also here Dr. Maya Iyer, who is an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Ohio State University and Wexner Medical Center and, or sorry, at Nationwide Children's Hospital and serves as associate director of Women in Science and Medicine. Arwa, Maya, welcome to MedNet. Thank you, Jingjing. Thank you so much. Arwa, are there still very significant disparities between women and men, and men in medicine? Yes, Jingjing, unfortunately, to this day, there are still significant disparities between men and women in uh, medicine, but especially in academic medicine, as I will talk about more in detail when I give my talk. Perfect. And Maya, any sense on how the U.S. stacks up against other countries in terms of female representation? So like you mentioned in the introduction, about one-third, greater than one-third of physicians are women. However, among all countries across the nation, the United States is among the bottom four in terms of representation for women in medicine. Okay, so we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Thanks, Maya. Before we launch into today's program, I wanted to let you know that our newly updated website is now live. It is easier than ever to find our webcasts at ccme.osu.edu. Our post-tests and files are available there alongside our, our entire catalog of 120 programs, including some of our recent ones like gender-affirming care and immunization updates. Our programs are also available in an audio-only format under the MedNet21 CME podcast. You can still send us your questions using the suggest, uh, or suggestions for our program using the Ask a Question feature on our webcast player. And now I will turn things over to Arwa. Arwa? Thank you, Jingjing. Um, I'm going to be talking about gender inequity in academic medicine, what our current state is. At the end of this talk, I hope that you'll be able to recognize the status of gender inequity in pay, leadership, and research, understand some of the contributing factors to the equity gap, identify some of the challenges women face in academic medicine, and realize the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic had on women in academic medicine. I'll start out by giving a, a short historic perspective, uh, talk about gender inequity in pay, leadership, and research, some of the possible contributing factors, challenges that women face in medicine, and then hopefully moving forward. These are some of the points that have helped us get where we are today. So as you just heard, women first started joining the medical profession only in the 1840s when Elizabeth Blackwell became the first female physician to obtain a medical degree in the United States. As the Industrial Revolution came on, women joined the workforce. However, they were often paid less than their male counterparts for the same labor. This led to the Equal Pay Act of 1963 that prohibits discrimination between men and women in pay for doing the same job, followed by the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that uh, prohibits discrimination based on gender, color, uh, religion, sex, and national origin, and that Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 that prevents uh, gender discrimination, including against pregnancy, sexual orientation, or gender identity in any educational program or federally funded program, 
and the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009 that was signed by President Obama, um, allowing more time for people to file complaints um, if they feel that they had some wage discrimination against them. So there have been strides made over the years. Um, in a 2018 report, it was noted that more than half of medical students are female. Women are approximately 46% of physicians in training, and women comprise more than one-third of the active physician workforce. However, there still are gender inequities in academic medicine, in pay, in research, and in leadership. Talking a little bit about pay equity gap, um, a study showed that sex differences in physician salary in the U.S. public medical schools exist even after accounting for age, experience, specialty, faculty rank, and measures of research productivity and clinical revenue. The salary gap between male and female physicians adds up to $2 million in lifetime earnings, which is a staggering amount. The AAMC in 2021 issued a new assessment of salary disparities among U.S. physicians according to gender, race, and their intersection that reaffirms a persistent gender pay gap. And um, just recently in this year, um, an article came out that talked about trying to close this gap um, that still exists amongst women at every rank that particularly affects women of color and that could no longer be blamed as a pipeline issue. This pay gap persists across all specialties. In 2021, Doximity put out a report that showed a 24 to 30% pay gap across different specialties, including surgical and non-surgical specialties. Overall, the starting salary for women was a median of $26,800 lower than the starting salary for men. And even year 10 salaries were lower for women in 43 of 45 specialties studied. The largest pay disparity after 10 years was in adult neurosurgery, which was approximately $300,000. In this report from 2018, um, they studied the average annual income between males and females in different non-surgical specialties, including family medicine, internal medicine, and psychiatry, where they noted that there was a distinct difference. But even when they studied the average income for women and male uh, physicians that worked 41 hours a week or more, so more of an equal look, there was still a discrepancy in the pay, uh, pay wages between uh, male and female physicians across those specialties. And in 2018, uh, Doximity also looked at uh, wages between male and, and female uh, physicians and showed that women's pay fell short of men's in different specialties that included surgical and non-surgical specialties, uh, some with larger gaps and some with smaller gaps. So there are lots of contributing factors that may play a role um, in inequity in pay in medicine. And some of these may be broader issues of gender inequity, but others may also be specific to women in medicine. For instance, women may find more career opportunities in lower paying specialties. 
and it was noted that 63% of pediatricians are females, but 95% of orthopedic surgeons are males. Women are also more likely to prioritize flexible schedules over higher pay, and many women may cut down on their work hours once they have children, especially early on. Women also tend not to self-promote or negotiate salary, and it was noted that women will just accept the first offer that they get. Um, in a 2021 report uh, that looked into top workplace concerns for men and women, you can see in the middle that combining working and parenting was definitely more of a priority for women than it was for men. And this is something that has been noted repeatedly, the motherhood penalty. Um, a, a recent National Bureau of Economics working paper showed that while women have made lots of strides towards uh, wage equity, most of the remaining gender inequality in earnings is due to children. And this is the motherhood penalty, whereas fathers typically are given more money when they have kids, known as the fatherhood bonus. Studies of physicians have shown that women with children work an average 10 hours fewer per week compared with women physicians who don't have children. <clears throat> Additionally, um, econom economist Claudia Golden has shown that even when mothers cut back at work, they're not paid proportionately less. They're still paid less than men for the hours they work. Women who become mothers are also often discriminated against. They are recommended for lower starting salaries. They're seen as less competent and passed over for promotions based on the assumption that they don't want more senior roles if they have young children at home. Talking a little bit more and moving to a, the research equity gap, which also exists. Women physicians assume more domestic responsibilities compared with, to their uh, male counterparts. And this takes away from the time that they could spend on clinical duties, grant applications, manuscript preparation, and opportunities for networking and professional development. Women also receive less research funding and would benefit from a blinded research review and career flexibility. Women primary and senior authors were less likely to be cited, and this was reported in multiple uh, papers and articles. Women are also less likely to be published in high-impact journals, and they are less likely to have research cited by others. Men get more funding for grants. They, therefore, attract more trainees and become more productive and get promoted. Women are less likely to be on the guideline panels, and that also gives them less of a voice or less power. In a study uh, in JAMA in 2015, they found that only 36% of primary authors and 26% of the senior authors in their sample were women. Gender-based differences in article citations may be a key contributor to disparities in the advancement and promotion of women in academic medicine. A little bit more about leadership and rank equity gap. So among physicians with faculty appointments in U.S. medical schools, there were sex differences in academic faculty rank with women substantially less likely than men to be full professors after accounting for age, experience, specialty, and measures of research productivity. 
Sex differences in academic rank in U.S. medical schools in 2014 found that only 21 percent of full professors, 15 percent of department chairs, and 16 percent of deans were women. And in a study in 2018 that looked at gender differences in academic medicine relating to retention, rank, and leadership, after 17 years, women were less likely to attain senior rank or to remain in academic fields than their male counterparts. Gender disparities in medical leadership and entrepreneurship were also looked at, and it was noted that most women do not know their worth and don't negotiate for better salary, work flexibility, or promotion. And uh, this report in 2016 highlights how there is a decreasing number of women with increasing rank, starting from medical school applicants and going up to department chairs. What are some other challenges that women face? Uh, lack of mentors and sponsors is a very big challenge. There is still some discrimination and gender bias in the workplace. Women's letters of reference, for instance, tend to be shorter and maybe less specific or more descriptive as opposed to those for men. The cultural environment of the workplace may have a role to play. Imposter syndrome has been noted to be something that many women uh, are affected by and more than uh, their male counterparts. The need for better work-life integration and choices that are made to balance work and family uh, play a major role. The likability paradox, women tend to want to be liked in the workplace, and that may play a role in how they achieve their success. Geography may ha have a minor role to play. Um, different doctoring styles may also play a role. Women sometimes are noted to spend more time with their patients. And women are notably assigned more advisees, take on more service um, and greater <laughs> teaching loads, the so-called citizenship tasks that are not tracked or accounted for, and this takes up more of their time, decreasing their ability to obtain the same research achievements as their men counterparts. And then when the COVID pandemic hit, women were affected uh, greater uh, than men, and this uh, gender inequity was expanded. It was reported that women submitted fewer academic papers, there were decreased grant submissions. Women were more likely to leave academia, academia altogether and turn down leadership roles. Child care and domestic responsibilities disproportionately fell on women, resulting in a larger number of lost work hours. Tenure clock extensions may have been put in place to help, but they could have had a paradoxical effect in that they may have excluded some members from positions of power that required tenure. They may have prevented them from applying to large research center grants that also required tenure. And the tenure clock measures also will make these female faculty members out of sync with funding mechanisms that have time restrictions. So tenure and promotion after the pandemic requires more than just tenure clock extensions. Equity requires a lot more um, um, interventions to help women uh, close that gap. So where are we today? Like I mentioned, more than 50% of medical students are female. However, less than 20% of our leaders in chairs or deans are females. 
there still is a significant wage gap between men and women in medicine, especially in academic medicine, of about 15 to 30 percent. And in research, women still are uh, likely to have less citations and to have less publications and support. But there is a lot more awareness. There have been a lot of publications out there recently in articles as well as in books that are working on closing the gender gap in medicine, whether in pay or research or leadership. And I'm very optimistic that we can work on the future and make it better. These are my references, and I would like to now hand it over to my colleague, Maya, who's going to tell us how we can make things better. Wonderful. Thank you, Arwa, for this wonderful introduction into gender inequity. In this portion of the talk, we will address how we can actually mitigate gender inequity in academic medicine. So the goal of this portion is to understand that gender inequity in academic relationships is multifaceted and that there are many different strategies that we need to incorporate to address these barriers and components. And in particular, by the end of the session, you'll be able to understand how we can improve pay equity, tactics to improve the promotion and tenure P&T process, the importance of sponsorship for career development, <clears throat> and then strategies to retain women in academic medicine. So let's dive in. The first thing to do is how can we improve pay parity? So when faculty are hired, as Arwa mentioned, there is likely an immediate discrepancy in disparity of pay with women physicians being paid less than their male counterparts. And this discrepancy is perpetuated through an entire career. So one way to mitigate pay inequity is to actually have salary transparency where institutions publicly display starting salaries of all hires, which leads to negotiation. The data shows that women do not negotiate for themselves at as high of a frequency as their male counterparts. So as a result, we really need to develop skills training programs for both trainees as well as junior faculty that instill confidence with negotiation skills. And effective negotiation skills actually go beyond asking for salary compensation increases. We really have to start instilling this confidence to ask for methods and meaningful support that will enable career advancement. In addition, to address pay inequity, we should have implicit bias um, training programs included in the hiring and negotiating process. You will hear this implicit bias training is a recurring theme throughout my portion of the talk. But members of institutional leadership that are involved in the hiring and negotiating process should take part in such trainings just for the simple reason to bring forth unconscious biases and what their impact will be when new faculty are hired. And then finally, as institutions, we should learn from one another. Institutions should conduct environmental scans to see what strategies are effective to address pay parity. In fact, the Association of American Medical Colleges, or AAMC, publishes an annual report on this very issue. And so the most recent report published from the AAMC was actually one year ago, in October 2021. And this report outlined the steps that institutions can take to address salary inequity. And these are the steps. One, the institution can establish a commitment to understanding and addressing salary inequity. They have to announce that across the campus that they're committed to this. 
scan the environment um, and assess where efforts are already underway if they're within pockets of the institution and see what strategies might already be effective. Convene a diverse team of different stakeholders of various ranks and disciplines to explore pay and equity within the institution. Scan the environment and also look at local salary equity analyses. Identify the various sources of compensation that play a role into salary. So these are gender, demographics, race, ethnicity, allocation of time and effort in your role. And use those um, demographic points to see how they play into salary equity. And then institutions should be transparent in their compensation processes. They really need to make sure that there's an equitable understanding and a consistent foundation of how people are compensated within the organization. So let's move on to promotion and tenure, or P&T, as it's often referred to. So although women make up greater than 50% of medical students, we really have not reached parity in terms of the representation of women at higher ranks. And Arwa mentioned this in her talk as well. What the most recent AAMC report was published in 2018 on the state of women in academic medicine. And this report showed that among all women physicians, there's only 25% that have attained the rank of full professors, 18% who are department chairs, and 18% who are deans. So from this data, we can see that women are not being promoted into higher academic ranks. And the promotion criteria that really affect women are the following. Research, which includes grants, publications, serving on editorial boards, national recognition, national awards, being an invited speaker, a lecturer, a plenary speaker or keynote individual, and then being elected to leadership pipelines. And so there's several theories as to why there's a lack of women representing these higher ranks. And oftentimes people think it's because of attrition. But attrition alone does not really account for these disparities that we're seeing at these higher ranks. So the problem lies that there's really not a leaky pipeline. It's the fact that what Arvo had mentioned before is that women are often overrepresented in endeavors such as clinical work and educational pathways. And then the problem with that is that these pathways do not necessarily lead to the scholarly output for which this criteria is used. So going forth in the next few slides, let's look at each of these individual criteria to see what we can do to actually address gender inequity. So what about publications? This is your scholarly output. Women physicians are underrepresented among first authors, senior authors, and guest editorial authors in journals across all medical specialties. Julie Silver is a physician researcher at Harvard in gender equity, and she published this really nice study that looked at publications in high-impact pediatric journals. Arwa mentioned earlier that approximately 62 to 65% of pediatricians are women. But in this study, Dr. Silver and colleagues found that only 41% of the authors in these journals were women. So what do we do? Well, one thing we can do is actually blind reviewers to author demographics. This means removing author gender and rank. So the landmark study that actually investigates this was by Moss Rakusen. And what happened was that there were science faculty members that were tasked with hiring a student to be a lab manager. And these faculty members received CVs of these students, and they were asked to rate the students based on hireability, ability to be coached, um, and being mentored, and what they would offer as a starting salary. 
So the CVs were indistinguishable except for the fact that half of the CVs had a male name and half of the CVs had a female name. But across the board, the CVs with a female name were rated lower in terms of higher ability, the ability to be coached, and were offered less starting salary by both male and female faculty reviewers. So blinding author demographics, like this study showed, can really help improve that disparity. Okay? And then the second thing is we really need to include more women in journal editorial boards and as invited reviewers. Um, journals with female editors and chiefs have a substantially higher rate of having women first authors than journals with male editors and chiefs. And the percentages is 36 and 20% respectively. So that 16% difference is remarkable, right? And then we also need to improve research funding, right? Because the research funding allows papers to be produced that can eventually be published. So the thing is, women are less likely to be successful in obtaining grants. And this is even true, the literature shows, for successful women who have obtained prestigious career development grants are less likely to go on to achieve R01s, which are often considered the gold standard of research training grants. So what can we do? Again, Implicit bias training might be beneficial if we train grant reviewers on this process, but we also need to ensure that there's equitable representation in recipients of the grants. So in 2003, the NIH actually implemented um, a guideline that emphasized equitable representation of women and minoritized individuals among their grant recipients. In addition, we really need to remove male-centric type terms from these application criteria. So these male type terms are often aggressive, risk-taking, um, um, very goal-oriented. And these criteria ironically might hinder women. So I'll give an example. When the NIH Director's uh, Pioneer Award removed these stereotypical male behaviors from their applications, they had a representation of women recipients of these awards increase from 0% to 43%. So that's a remarkable change. And then just like editorial boards we mentioned before, we really need to increase the representation of women on grant review committees to improve research allocation funding for other women physicians. So moving on to the next part, uh, I mentioned earlier one of the promotion criteria is actually developing a national reputation, having that national recognition. That's critical in the promotion and tenure process. And one method to boost that national reputation is actually being an invited speaker. And it's really key to increasing your reputation, but also establishing collaborations and networks and being able to publicize your work. So. What we see, though, is women are not invited frequently to be national speakers, and this is across all medical specialties. So to address this inequity, we really should increase women's representations on conference planning committees. So Castival and Handelsman, whose citation is included on the slide, conducted a study, and they found that um, conferences in which the planning committees were all men had significantly fewer invited female speakers than conference planning committees that had at least one woman. And the differences were 25% versus about 43%. Moreover, this study showed that when conference planning committees included at least one woman, it decreased the risk of having all male panels or manals by 70%. However, 
I want to point out one thing that really needs investigation in the future. We need to study why women decline speaker invites. And this could be due to a multitude of reasons, childcare, caretaking responsibilities, inability to travel, partner issues, work-life integration, etc. But one study found that 50% of invited women declined speaker invitations versus 26% of men declining these invitations. So this is an important point to do for future scientific investigative research. And it might be a way that we can encourage more women to be invited speakers as well. All right. So the 2018 report on the state of women in academic medicine showed that women are underrepresented in leadership positions, such as journal editors and chiefs, medical society pres presidents, and even deaconal positions, which are your deans, assistant deans, associate deans. So to address this disparity, we should actually have term limits here. So Beeler and colleagues published a study in New England Journal of Medicine three years ago that showed that the average term length for department chairs in medical schools across the United States was 8.7 years for men and 6.1 years for women, with the longest term length being 43 years. So due to this low turnover, the authors estimated that it would take nearly 50 years to achieve gender parity and leadership positions if we were going at this current rate. So the NIH has actually also recognized this too and recently introduced 12-year term limits for their intramural laboratory and branch chief officers to diversify leadership. And so once we have term limits, we can allow a, more fa a faster turnover of representation of voices and bring in actually more diverse talent. And the other thing that we need is sponsorship. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. And then finally, women are less likely to receive awards for scholarship, which means for research. And they're instead more likely to receive awards for service and teaching. And while the latter is still an honor, it does not provide the same leverage that research funding and being recognized for your research does, especially when we're addressing the promotion and tenure process. In addition, women are less likely to be nominated for such awards and oftentimes because they don't have access to the professional societies that are doing the nomination processes. So what can we do? Well, just like with conference planning committees, we can increase the representation of women in awards committees. Arwa and I were really fortunate a few years ago to serve as co-chairs of the award subcommittee for women in medicine and science group at Ohio State's College of Medicine. And the goal of the award subcommittee is to promote the recognition and the nomination process and the application for awards both locally and nationally. Second, we really need to be careful about the language we use for nomination letters. Arwa touched upon this point as well. Women and men are written about differently in the nomination process. Men can be described as brilliant, and women might be, example, for example, be described as team players. And these nuances seem very slight, but they do impact how many women receive awards at a national level. And then again, sponsorship is important, right? So what is sponsorship? I've danced around this issue a lot. So sponsorship is a professional relationship in which an established or rising leader identifies and chooses an outstanding junior talent, develops that person's career, and reaps significant rewards for these efforts. So we'll often talk about mentorship. And mentors give, but the difference is sponsors invest in an individual's career. So 
both mentorship and sponsorship overlap. Mentors and sponsors give advice, they provide feedback, they make introductions, and they provide guidance. However, mentors are willing to support you, they're a sounding board, they build your confidence, and the key point is they expect very little in return. On the other hand, a sponsor is a senior person who believes in you and your potential and they're willing to bet on you. And they will advocate for you for your next promotion, your next role, your next grant, etc. And they encourage risk taking. They have your back, but in return, they do expect something. They expect stellar performance and loyalty. So unlike mentoring relationships, a sponsoring relationship really places the protege and sponsor actively and publicly working for each other's interests and benefits. It's a two-way street. So the actions that a protege does is that they deliver on performance, they're loyal, and they add value to the sponsor's portfolio. And in return, the sponsor provides political air coverage, um, capital, they advocate, and they also provide buy-in. So sponsorship actually benefits both proteges and sponsors. So sponsor, or sorry, proteges get this buy-in from senior leadership. They're more likely to have pay raises, promotions, and high-profile assignments. And then sponsors themselves benefit. Their own career is promoted. They often get promoted themselves. They have increased personal satisfaction. They're open to new markets. They have reliable loyalty from their protege and they are allowed to shine based on the work of their protege. So how does sponsorship play a role in gender equity, right? That's the big question. So here's that data again from the 2018 AAMC report on the state of women in academic medicine. And I showed this slide before, but I'm showing it again. So the data shows that sponsorship is actually crucial for women to attain those higher leadership positions. Right now, only less than 20% are department chairs and deans, right? So Keating and colleagues published an article in JSEP just this past year that talked about how sponsorship is crucial, especially for mid-career women faculty. And here's a quote directly from their paper. They said, lack of sponsorship are among the barriers that inhibit mid-career faculty's growth in high visibility roles that are needed for career advancement. Sponsorship is known to be effective. It is used as a tactic in corporate America. In 2017, the Women in Workplace Study, which is conducted by the Harvard Business Review, showed that women in the business arena who receive advice, guidance from managers and senior leaders on career advancement were more likely to be promoted. Seems simple. However, the crux was most early tenure women were not receiving this advice, mentoring, guidance, and sponsorship from senior leaders. So this is an issue, but it's a strategy that can be used in medicine. So Beverly Anderson works at Well Fargo, and this is a really nice quote on sponsorship. And she said, I'm a huge proponent of sponsorship. I can track the times when my career was accelerated due to male sponsorship, mostly white male sponsorship early in my career. I happened to meet a gentleman who was the head of corporate banking early in my career, and he stayed with me as I moved through my career, and it made a huge difference. And stalls in my career have been due to the absence of sponsorship or not having the right one. So this highlights that sponsorship is imperative for women in advancing that. And like I said, we should borrow these strategies. So finally, to address gender inequity in medicine, we have to address faculty retention. Women leave academic medicine for numerous reasons, right? Lack of productivity, lack of mentorship, toxic workplace environments, work-life integration issues. 
At the same time, it's really unclear what institutions are doing to retain faculty. So in 2017, Carr and colleagues conducted the study where they surveyed 24 medical schools and they especially, they interviewed leaders at these medical schools who were part of GWIMS, which is the group of women in medicine and science, part of AAMC, the group on diversity um, and inclusion, or GDI, which is also part of the AAMC, and senior leaders in gender equity. And what they asked was, does your program, your medical school, have a program that will retain faculty? And among these 24 medical schools, only eight had such effective programs. I will say the OSU College of Medicine is actively working on this issue and has a faculty retention task force, so we are addressing this locally. What this paper also showed, though, was that gender bias training, which I've said over and over again can be helpful, that that alone is not effective in retaining faculty. We have to do more. So one thing we can do more is have more work-life integration, right? This includes having emergency childcare or caretaking options and fair and transparent parental leave policies. For example, the paper says resources such as emergency on-site childcare could be really beneficial or re-entry programs for faculty who've either taken medical or family leaves might be really helpful for faculty to want to stay at an institution. And then finally, formalized mentorship and institutional commitment is needed. So what I mean by that is that mentorship is often based on volunteerism. And as such, it's not standardized and it's not equitable across all institutions. In fact, faculty, not just women, might not have access to mentorship where they're at. But if an institution funds mentorship efforts and has a, a robust program dedicated to that, that improves equity and access to mentorship for all faculty members. Which leads to the issue of career development programs, right? So many of these include a formalized component of mentorship, and they are quite competitive. The Hedgewig Van Emergen Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine Program, which is ELAM, is one of the most prestigious career development leadership programs for women in medicine. Um, and it's designed to promote the careers of senior female faculty members in academic healthcare in a way that ultimately seeks to reform the healthcare environment in terms of gender equity, but also that these reformations go beyond the lifespan and career span of the participants. And as you can see from this list, ELAMs, who are graduates of ELAM, have gone on to do remarkable things and they have high level positions within US medical schools. However, the issue is that programs such as ELAM or the AAMC Early and Mid-Career Women's Career Development Programs only take two individuals per institution per year. So what we need to do is have institutions develop equally robust internal career development programs so that we can support our women faculty within the institution. And then to mirror Dr. Shana's talk, we really have to address how COVID-19 has had a gendered impact in academic medicine. So when the pandemic hit, many clinical and bench laboratories had to shut down and they had to pause their work, and as a result of that, scientific progress couldn't be made, and oftentimes they lost their funding. However, some institutions started receiving what was called bridge funding to restart this lab work. And so institutions must really ensure that there's an equitable distribution of these funds for both labs run by male and female um, research scientists. In addition, appropriately so, clinical priorities took precedence. Um, and priority over other initiatives during the pandemic. 
However, as we move to a post-pandemic world, we really have to avoid abandoning these DEI initiatives that were established and made so many great strides in medicine. I touched upon paid caretaking leave and flexible work schedules, which are paramount, especially for workforce re-entry, which will be an issue in the coming years. And then finally, leadership really needs to be made aware of the tasks and their ass of women and minorities, especially black women in medicine. Oftentimes, women and minorities are tasked with uh, service-related activities, as Arwa mentioned. And such activities are not necessarily helpful in the promotion process because they don't lead to that same scholarly output. So leadership really must be careful about their ass of such individuals, especially at a time when burnout is on the rise. So these are only some of the top items to address about the gendered impact of COVID-19 in women in academic medicine. I'm sure that more will come up as the years go by, but this is a way to start and then continue these conversations. So today, in this portion of the talk, we discuss strategies to improve pay equity, tactics to improve the equity in the promotion and tenure process, and the importance of sponsorship for career development, and what we can do to retain women in medicine. We did this for the overall goal to understand that gender inequity in academic medicine is multifaceted and that we really need to take a multi-pronged approach to address all of these various components and barriers. So thank you so much for the, your time today and I will pass it back on to Jing Jing. Thank you guys so much. Maya, that was, uh, or and Arwa and Maya both, um, that was really, really helpful. And I mean, I think there's a lot of work to do. And I really like how you laid out a lot of strategies for us to tackle this and help to improve the equity between men and women. Mm -hmm. So I guess, um, you know, one thing that struck me was your quote about Beverly Anderson. She mentioned that sponsorship, and, and you several times have mentioned the importance of sponsorship, but she, in her quote, specifically called out male sponsorship. Is it important for the sponsor to be a male? That's a great question. Um, in fact, it is not important for the sponsor to be a male. By definition, a sponsor is someone who's in a senior leadership position that can invest in you and promote your career growth and development. So it would be great if we have more female sponsors in academic medicine. The problem is, as the AAMC data shows, is that women are not currently represented at those upper echelon ranks. And so we often default to having male sponsors. Mm -hmm. And speaking of sponsors, how does one get a sponsor? Oh, such a great question. <laughs> so I always go back to that um, preschool book, Will You Be My Mother, right? You really can't go around asking, will you be my sponsor? Um, so you really have to show your value, right? And show your worth to an individual. That means meeting with leaders within your department or division, showing what you're interested in, showing how you can add value to their portfolio. And oftentimes you'll be surprised, you'll get invited. Hey, can you serve on this panel? Can you serve on making these guidelines? Mm -hmm. That's how you develop those sponsoring relationships. Okay. And, you know, speaking of gender um, bias in the workplace, mm -hmm. and sometimes that bias is implicit, the, the person doesn't even know that they're um, exhibiting this type of behavior. What can we do as either a recipient or a bystander, especially mm -hmm. in the situation where um, the perpetrator may be um, having you know implicit bias and and you know we don't want to embarrass them but mm -hmm. we do want to make them aware that their behavior is um, showing bias absolutely so i will say it's often hard for individuals who are targets or victims of the um the bias because 
it's hard to speak out in the moment, especially when it's a senior leader doing that. So implicit bias in some ways is a little bit easier to tackle than overt harassment. The reason is that you can actually call out the biases and just say, hey, did you mean that? This is how I interpreted this. And it's really showing the difference between intent and impact for an individual. And witnesses or bystanders can do this as well too. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah. And Arwa, you know, you mentioned that having children really negatively impacts a woman's career. But what are some strategies we can use to mitigate that? So um, some of the things that can be done to help women uh, would be to ease them back into the workforce. So uh, things called returnships or ways to kind of gradually have them come back in instead of coming back at full capacity. Um, um, also helping them find affordable and uh, accessible childcare would be very helpful as Maya touched on. Having that on site would be great. Uh, for women who would like to continue nursing their child, having nursing uh, discrete places for them to do that would be also a good thing to develop. Um, and then offering flexibility in work, for instance, more uh, work from home options um, so that they can juggle both the childcare or the caregiving at home as well as their work uh, would be very helpful. Okay, and I guess um, one thing that uh, is maybe a little bit harder to tackle would be just the global culture shift of making childcare and domestic duties more equitable between men and women. Is there any strategies for that? Um, I don't know that there's going to be a general strategy that would work for everyone. Um, obviously, uh, an understanding uh, would be helpful, um, but it will still, for the most part, still falls on the woman to carry the burden of most of the domestic work relating to childcare, especially um, at homes. Um, however, I do feel that, especially after the pandemic, there has been a little bit more of a shift with men taking on a little bit more responsibility to help out since the pandemic hit pretty much everyone just as hard. And there was a little bit more of maybe awareness of how the woman was shouldering the burden and then um, a little bit more approach to helping with that burden. Okay. And now, Arwa, you and Maya both touched on the additional challenges of women of color. What are some additional challenges women of color might face and what can we do about it? Um, so women of color, unfortunately, um, are faced with a stronger bias at the workforce. Um, and, and that can be either from their colleagues and, and superiors. It can come from their patients and their patients' families. Um, interactions may show discrimination. Um, they may feel that they are stereotyped. Um, they also may feel like they can't speak up. They may feel isolated if there's no diversity in that workforce. Um, and so I think some of the ways to help mitigate that would be, one, to increase diversity in the workforce. Um, so having more women of color around them would give them that sense of belonging um, and also allow them to be more uh, successful because they can voice their opinion, mm -hmm. um, making sure that they can be heard. Um, and then um, giving them opportunities for uh, leadership positions and opportunities for uh, workshops and things like that to allow them to grow uh, purposefully, I think would be also very helpful. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned attrition. Now, is attrition very high among women in medicine? Um, yes, um, several reports have uh, mentioned that uh, women are more likely to leave academic medicine in particular uh, than their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be especially before they reach any uh, higher levels, so even before reaching associate professor level. Mm. Okay, that is too bad. 
Now, Maya, um, you know, you guys have mentioned that COVID has had a huge impact mm -hmm. on women um, and they're turning down speaker opportunities. Mm -hmm. I know through COVID, one thing that has become more of the norm is uh, virtual presentations. Mm -hmm. um, do we do we know if women turn down virtual presentations at a high rate as in addition to in-person engagements? That's a great question. Um, actually, we don't have the data that I know of um, in regards to that, um, but I will say people often think, oh, having a virtual meeting is much easier since you don't have to travel, which does take into account an important factor. However, it still means being able to juggle giving that virtual presentation and oftentimes a chaotic home environment, right? When you have a toddler below your desk, so. <laughs> that is so true. Mm -hmm. I have definitely experienced that on <laughs> multiple occasions. Um, now, Arwa, last question. Um, you mentioned that the Equal Pay Act was passed in the 60s. If the Equal Pay Act has been in effect for over 50 year, 60 years, why do we still have such a discrepancy in pay? How is that permissible? I think, uh, obviously, I also don't have data to really support what I'm going to say, but from what I've researched and looked up, I feel that, um, one, there hasn't been as much um, advocacy for uh, making sure that the Equal Pay Act is enacted. Um, and so that is one thing. We don't have too many advocates for that. Also, many of the people still making the decisions are male um, in the more uh, higher uh, positions. And so because of that, they may not even view this as an issue that affects them. And so it may be that these are just perpetuated without thought as opposed to looking into a true wage gap. Mm -hmm. uh, but those are just my thoughts. Okay. Thank you both so much. I'm so grateful for you both for coming on and discussing this very important topic and giving us really useful, actionable strategies to move forward as we try to get equality for both men and women. Well, um, thank you so much. Let's hear a key takeaway from each of our presenters. Arwa? So um, I feel that we are currently more aware and more informed about the gender disparities that women face in medicine, especially in academic medicine. And while the situation is not great, I do feel that we have the opportunity now that we know all the information we do and more uh, publications and uh, productions are out there for us to know more about the situation, we can take action and we can make improvements. So I'm optimistic. And Maya? Oh, I echo a lot of what Arwa says already, um, but I also want to add that we really have to be focused in terms of addressing these areas of disparities and then taking an institutional approach where we can really shift the culture where we value the voices of women, not just women, but all physicians across the board. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. Don't forget to check out our new website at ccme.osu.edu. That address has not changed. Um, you can take the post test there and get your CME credit and ABIM maintenance of certification points. So next week, please join us for our program on psychiatric and behavioral health management in chronic health conditions with Dr. Ashley Pona and Dr. Kevin Johns. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.